You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you are wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Matthew Potts, who is the Plumer Professor of Christian Morals and Pussy Minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard University. We talk about memory, confession, repair, Toni Morrison, and so much more. Hello, Matthew, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Maisha. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited. No, thank you so much for joining us. So your 2022 book, Forgiveness and Alternative Account, it's a mix of literature It's also a mix of theology, but it's also a mix of philosophy. So I'm interested. How did you get interested in the latter? How did you get interested in philosophy? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I I was an English major as an undergraduate, right? And so most of it was, I mean, that's maybe an explanation of why I have some literature in the book or literary criticism in the book. But, you know, literary theory has a lot of, as I started reading literary theory, I was introduced to kind of continental critical theory, like you know, in the, especially in the 90s when I was in college, um, figures like uh, Derrida and others of the continental, Heidegger, others of the continental tradition were were important in literary theory. And so I got introduced to this, this these modes of thought as an undergrad. And then in graduate school, I went, I got a PhD in the study of religion, right? And focusing mostly on like religious ethics and on theology. And, um, you know, for most of Western intellectual history, there wasn't a st- bright line between theology and philosophy, right? Like the, and so in my training, just studying the history of the study of religion and the study of kind of Western thought around ethics, around philosophy, religion, like I was reading folks like Kant and Hume and Nietzsche and, and these folks who come out of the, come out of the Western philosophical tradition, as well as other folks that I was interested in kind of beyond that who make, you know, relatively minor appearances in the book, but folks out of the, like the Eastern philosophical traditions. Yeah. And so so when I was thinking about these questions, ethical questions, moral questions and questions of religion, the the kind of the Western philosophical tradition was was kind of central to what I focused on. I think it's also true of like of of Harvard. Harvard's Ph.D. program tends to be tends to have more emphasis in philosophy and philosophical um, foundations than maybe some other Ph.D. programs. Chicago's like that as well. But there were other, you know, PhD programs in the study of religion, which sometimes have slightly different methodological focuses. Um, but that's that's what it's like here. So your book is about forgiveness, but it's also about retaliation and it's also about repentance and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I want to yeah, talk right. about those, you know, before we get into forgiveness per se, I want to talk about yeah. those those first two themes. So you note that one way that we hold other people accountable. Um, particularly when it comes to the law, is through retaliation via the law. We call it justice. And you say that this this depends on, and I'm going to cite you here, a pragmatically violent model of sovereignty, end quote. So what do you mean by this? And what then 
is a legal alternative? That's a great question. And and I, just to kind of the last, the, the end of your question, like what's the legal alternative? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right? Right, right, I mean, this is the, this is the advantage of being, uh, you know, uh, to kind of have your head in the clouds and just think about ideas is like the practicalities of things. But I do care about the practicalities of things. And I think there are alternatives, but just to kind of talk through like your question. I mean, the, the, the first thing I would say is like, I wanted to focus on the question of retaliation when thinking about forgiveness, because it seems to me, at least out of the Christian tradition, one of the ways that forgiveness or at least a Christian nonviolent ethic, you know, I, I, those things overlap in my book, as you might ask me about later on. Um, one of the ways that that Christian kind of nonviolent ethic arises is in the context of, of uh, an ideology or a, a definition of justice as retaliatory as retaliation. And this comes out of the Hebrew Bible, but not just the Hebrew Bible, like most of the ancient kind of codes of law, Hammurabi's code, other ancient codes out of the ancient Near East. When it talks about justice, when it talks about um, how justice is meted out, what it defines that as is what's traditionally called in Latin, the lex talionis, which is the law of like for like. And that word talionis is what becomes the root of the English word retaliation. There's this idea like if if one is harmed, then the one who caused the harm is harmed in turn in roughly equal measure, right? So you have this teaching in the Hebrew Bible, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? This is this is this kind of balance. And And one of the things I talk about in the book is that you can see like a fundamental sort of you might say like a democratic impulse behind this, right? If you think about the social structure of the of the societies in which this law arose, right? It was probably the case that the powerful man could do whatever he wanted to the poor man or to the enslaved person in Israel, right? And and for the law to say, nope, the eye of the rich person and the powerful person, well, actually in that case, man, right? the, the, the eye of the rich man, or the powerful man is of equal value to the eye of the poor man. Like what it's actually pointing towards is this sense of equality among persons. And actually, you know, if you look in the history of Israel, if you ask our historians rather than our theologians or our philosophers, right, they, they say there's very little evidence that in any time in the ancient world that people's eyes were actually plucked out or their pan, like their teeth were pulled out, right? It was all like, Often that impulse that there is this equality among persons led to different sort of punishments being meted out. So there were a, a fee was charged or like some kind of fine um, or, or, or the like. Right now, there was always kind of corporal punishment and capital punishment in these traditions as well. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but from the beginning, it wasn't a strict one to one thing. But what was kind of basic to the understanding of what justice is, is that if I am harmed, then the one who harmed me should be harmed in turn. And one of the things that I wanted to think about in terms of retaliation was like, why is that our conception of justice, right? Like justice is a human construct. And, and we have this idea that if I'm harmed, then the person who harmed me should be harmed in turn. But I wanted to ask what that actually does. Like, does that actually foster like a, a good future? Does it actually foster um, the kind of the kind of future that we want for ourselves and for others? Um, and if it doesn't, like, how else can we think about justice? And I think that the Christian New Testament and some of Jesus's teachings in the New Testament are playing 
exactly with this line. I mean, this is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth, I say to you, et cetera, et cetera. We're like, don't do that, basically, right? He's he's literally like responding to this and trying to imagine a different idea of what justice would be, which where there is a thing called justice, but it doesn't look like reciprocal harm. It looks like something else. Now, the line that you pulled, which was something about sovereignty, Problematically violent model of sovereignty is your words. I mean, one of the things I'm worried about there is, I mean, this is this is a philosophy podcast, right? So I can I can dig in a little bit, right? You don't mind yes, if, I, yes. if I dig in a little bit, right? Oh, right ahead. Yeah. So one of the things I'm I'm interested in there is, as you know, since you've looked at my book, right? I'm I'm interested in the writing. One of the people who influence one of the persons who influences my thinking in this book is this philosopher named Hannah Arendt. And Arendt talks about the Western model of sovereignty as wrong in this basic way, right? She, she and she relates it to the idea of freedom. She's like the the Western kind of. Um, the Western ideology since Plato, Western philosophy, she says, is is really concerned with this idea of freedom, but it has the wrong conception of what freedom is. She says she she says the West thinks since Plato, the West thinks freedom comes from a kind of sovereignty, and by sovereignty she means like unencumberedness. Like, I don't need you. I can be free to do whatever I want. I am unencumbered by those around me. And she says that becomes this ideal. To be free means to to not depend upon anyone else. And what what you end up with is this kind of isolated figure of the person who is absolutely sovereign, absolutely suzerain, right? And this is what like like thinkers I've already mentioned, right? People like Nietzsche and so forth, when they talk about forgiveness and punishment, that's that's the kind of model of freedom that they're aspiring towards. And she says, that's a lie. Like, that's not what human relations are like. Actually, human beings are relational creatures that were always in some way dependent upon one another. And that the fantasy that we could achieve some sort of freedom where we're no longer encumbered by other people is just that a fantasy. And so, but she doesn't say that she says there still is a possibility for freedom. She says the unique freedom that humans have is not that they can become free from others. They can become free to begin again. They can become free to break with the past and start over. And she actually uses the model of like reciprocal violence. She says, like, there's, there can be the situation where, like, I cause you harm and you cause me harm and I cause you harm and you cause me harm. And we get caught up in this cycle of violence. And she's like, that's unfreedom. When the past so, so entirely defines my future actions that I can do nothing else. And she's like, that's, that's where we're encumbered to others. But she says the human can do something to break that cycle and start a new future. And she's like, that's real freedom, the freedom to begin again, not to pretend that we're not related to others, but to realize that because we're related to others, this act of starting anew can actually have some social consequences. So this is where I think about this problematic idea of sovereignty, right? This idea that that I need to get free from others in order to, you know, establish my own kind of personal freedom or whatever. That's, Arendt says, nope, that's your, 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 creating an illusion and actually erasing all the people around you in order to create that illusion. The other person that I would think about in terms of the sovereignty thing is, I mentioned Derrida already. Derrida has these critiques of forgiveness where he says like, you know, we, because we think about forgiveness as so deeply related to reciprocal or retaliatory punishment, he says that, you know, we think of the forgiving 
the, 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 the act of forgiveness as one of generosity and goodwill and mercy. But what he says is like, if it's so intimately related to the obligation to punish, then there is this kind of sinister violence hiding behind every offer of forgiveness. In other mm-hmm. words, the person who is able to forgive is also the one who is entitled to, to punish. And only the one with the power to punish actually has the authority to forgive. So, I mean, when Derrida's talking about this, he's trying to skewer kind of Western religion and the idea of God as this loving, this loving figure, right? And what he wants to say is that, like, actually, there is this, there is this will to power. There, I mean, he doesn't use the language of will to power, but there is this sort of possibility or promise of violence hiding behind the forgiving gesture of the sovereign, because it's only the sovereign who can decide. Oh. The law says that you should be punished, but I am more powerful than the law, so I decide when the law doesn't apply. And that kind of power, the power of the exception, right, this is the kind of power that leads to fascism and and other kinds of, like, abeyances of the law. And so Derrida wants to say, like, oh, maybe, you know, forgiveness sounds nice, but when we think about it as so deeply tied to the authority to punish, then it just becomes a different version of the sovereign saying, I get to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it because I am the one with the power. Let's talk about the forgiveness exchange. So we're familiar with the concept that a victim, if they desire to do so, they will offer forgiveness. But we also at least have in our minds that the wrongdoer has a role to play. And what they will typically do, apologize, offer sincere apology, repent, et cetera, et cetera. And Martha Nussman's 2016 book, Anger and Forgiveness, she's quite critical of what she calls kind of that transactional kind of forgiveness process. So I want to yeah. talk about, you know, that confession and that exchange. So you write, and I'm going to cite you again here, that okay. repentance is is not a transactional element of a forgiven exchange. And you call it instead the intersubjective movement of a common memory, right? And it, it seems that, you know, you are indeed responding to Nussbaum's kind of uh, critical notion of the transaction. So I, I want you to explain uh, explain this a little bit more about repentance and confession being a, a, a kind of a movement of a common memory as opposed to that kind of destructive transaction that, that Nussbaum is critical of. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, one of the things that I try to do in this book is to separate forgiveness from reconciliation, right? I think in, in colloquial speech, at least, um, and even in some of the philosophical and theological literature, like the the forgiveness as a moral act and reconciliation as a moral event tend to slide into each other, tend to, to push into each other. And sometimes are, you know, fairly completely collapsed into each other. But this idea that, that my offer of forgiveness is either the beginning of, or the realization of, or, you know, a catalyst towards a, a reconciling of two people who have been divided by harm. And And one of the things I try to do in my book is to keep those very, very separate. There's a thing called forgiveness, which is its own event, which does not depend upon necessarily the the actions or the repentance or the the apology of the of the offender. Um, And that has its own kind of moral significance and merit. And then there's another thing called reconciliation, which absolutely depends upon the 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 offender offering some kind of forgiveness or some kind of some kind of reconciliatory like gesture or action, right. For the relationship to be restored. Now, the reason I say that is because as I think about forgiveness from within this kind of Christian context and trying to draw out and, and, and complicate the picture that's given in the Christian New Testament is, you know, I worry about 
and I, I know that you and I share these opinions, right? Uh, like I worry about the abuses of forgiveness, like the way that forgiveness as a, as a virtue is used to, to cause further harm to victims, to, to transfer moral obligation to them, to repair a relationship that they did not have any agency in, in sundering, right? Like that really, I really worry about that. And to me, like conceptually that it seemed like separating reconciliation for forgiveness seemed like the, the best way to do that. And maybe it's the best way for me because, you know, as a Christian, I want to hold on to forgiveness as this kind of fundamental virtue since Jesus says I have to do it. Right. And so I'm less willing to jettison forgiveness entirely, but the forgiveness that I want to hold on to is one that says like, Oh, I don't need to reconcile with my offender. I don't, I'm not responsible for restoring this relationship. So like what my forgiveness is, is something that happens, something else that happens. And the, the, you know, the definition I arrive at is related to what I was talking about before, which is that forgiveness is just deciding not to retaliate. It doesn't mean deciding, but, And in particular, that means deciding not to return violence with violence. It doesn't mean deciding to reconcile. It doesn't mean deciding to be in relationship with that person again. It doesn't mean deciding to to no longer be angry with that person. It just means I'm not going to harm you the way you you harm me. Now, one of the reasons, and I'm, I'm getting your memory question because I'm not just, I'm not just dodging it. (laughs) One of the reasons I say, I mean, one of the things that I do with that and I think about is, is you know, everything I was saying before about like, how does our response to harm help us to envision a future? How does, how does what we do in response to harm help us move forward into a future? One of the things I think like part of the moral significance of deciding not to return harm for harm is to do what Arendt said and say like, oh, we're going to begin a new future here. We're no longer going to let the past perpetuate in this particular way. That doesn't mean forgetting, right? It doesn't mean that the past disappears. It means saying that like, oh, my actions in the present actually cannot undo the past. My actions in the present can potentially build a new future, but they, I, they can't undo what has been done in the past. So my harm, my retaliatory harm of the other is not going to actually compensate for the harm that's been done to me. And so what I need is to adopt this posture of lament and mourning and grief. The thing that has been broken and taken from me is something I cannot get back and I can't get can't get it back by punishing the other person. I can't get it back by, you know, by, by the other person's apology to me. Like there's nothing that can be done to get back what has been lost. And so what I need to do is grieve. And it's only from this posture of deep grief where the broken thing cannot be fixed that I can actually live into a real future. Now it may be a future, which is brokenhearted. It's probably going to be a future that's brokenhearted in significant ways, but it's also the only future that's possible. Because what I worry about with other conceptions of retaliatory justice or other conceptions of justice is like there is this fantasy, like if I get revenge or if I you know, execute some kind of retaliatory or reciprocal violence, then something that has been lost to me will be restored. And I'm not sure it ever is. I think that maybe what's needed is this posture of grief and lament. So, OK, now I'll get to your memory question. So when <laughs> when I think about repentance in that light. What I'm thinking is that like what happens when a person repents, not to affect forgiveness, right? Like, cause I, in my model, the forgiving, the forgiving act that may or may not have already happened. Like maybe the, the offended person has already forgiven me. Maybe they haven't forgiven me yet. But when I go to repent, I think what I'm saying is, oh, this thing that I broke, I can't fix. There's no, I can't bring back what I caused you to lose. And it's me as the offender taking the same posture. Me as the offender saying, Oh, I, I can't restore what I have broken. I can try to make a better future with you, or I can try to, to, 
to build a better future or to to be accountable in this different way, like not to restore what's been lost, but to 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 do something good with the future, <laughs> right? But that is where I'm thinking about where I'm thinking about memory. What I worry about, like Nussbaum, is when the apology or when the confession becomes transactional, where it's like, oh, this is the price I pay. Like that this, I'm going to give you this thing and that's going to compensate for you. So my kind of groveling, this is Nussbaum's, I think, part of her critique at least is like, you know, my kind of groveling, my self-abasement, my, my shame in coming to you as a penitent person is in you seeing me suffer and humble myself that way. That becomes the kind of transactional suffering that I give you. So you can look beyond the suffering that you had that compensates for you, for the suffering I caused you. And so what she says is like this kind of traditional confessional model of forgiveness does is smuggle in suffering through the the figure of the penitent kind of abased ashamed um confessor or confessing person right she says that's just it's just suffering under a different visage and significantly kind of suppressed or diminished suffering right what i want to say is like i don't think there needs to be any reciprocal suffering what what the the penitent person is actually doing is is remembering better right mm-hmm. it's actually having a better memory like if if you're telling the truth about the past then you're telling the truth about what you can't bring back, what's too broken to be restored. And that means actually saying, oh, I can't fix this. That's my, that's my confession. My confession is that let's, let's remember, let's tell the truth about history. Here is something that I cannot undo. Now, that doesn't mean I lose all agency. I can do things about today and I can do things about tomorrow. And that may mean that I am obligated because I have told the truth about history the things that I can't bring back, that mean mean like today I need to do something for you or with you on your behalf, right? I mean, it's pointing to questions of reparation and atonement, right? But the atonement, interestingly, the reparation isn't to restore what has been lost. The, the reparation is actually an acknowledgement that what has been lost cannot be restored. And so I'm going to give you something else, right? Not as like one-to-one compensation, but as like this act of memory, as this sign that like the, the loss that you've suffered is one that I can't compensate, but I still am obligated to to try to help you move into a future. And so that's that's where questions of reparation and atonement come in. So let's try to bring in a illustrative example of this. And there's okay. no greater illustration than fiction itself. You you reference and spend some time with Toni Morrison's Beloved. Mm. And I wonder if you can just share with the audience how that text, on your view, helped us to understand the relationship between grief, literature, and forgiveness. Oh, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, it took me it took me about a hundred pages to figure that out in the book. So I don't, I don't know if I could if I can summarize it. I mean, so a couple of things about that book, I guess. One of the things about that book is is that um, there, I, one of the things there's, I think there's two central things that I think I, I would want to take from the book and that help me think through what forgiveness is, which is that. Um, I don't read the book the way a lot of critics of the book read it in that many critics, many readers of the book, I'm not saying this is a, a incorrect reading. It's just not, it's the way I read the book for a long time. But then on a, a reading a couple of years ago, um, I had this other idea and I found some other, a couple other critics who also read it the same way, which led me to have this kind of different reading of the, of the book or conclusion about what it's saying about forgiveness, which is I had, in my first several readings of the book, I had read it largely as a ghost story, 
mm-hmm. where I read the figure of Beloved in the novel. For I mean, there are going to be spoilers for your readers who have not read Beloved. Um, <laughs> they but should I have hope read all, it you, all your listeners should have read Beloved. And if you haven't, go read it anyway, because uh, there's no more important book. But but I had read it as largely a, as a ghost story. There's a there's a young woman who arrives arrives in the home of Sefa. Um, who's this kind of central character. And we're kind of made to believe that, that I don't know if that's fair. I came to believe as a reader that given some suggestions in the text and many characters in the novel also come to regard this woman who shows up at, at Setha's home as the ghost of a child that, that she killed earlier in the well, earlier in her history, when um, she had she had escaped into freedom, and she was about to be apprehended again by a, a really cruel slave owner that's redundant, a slave owner, and so she had, she had murdered one of her children, and we are kind of, I came to believe that this figure was was um, a ghost of that slain child, and there's a lot in the text that suggests that it may be, and at the end of the book, that ghost is exorcised by the community of people around Setha. They they kind of rally around her as she gets weaker and weaker. There's a lot that goes on in the book, right? And and they kind of overthrow this ghost and banish her, um, this ghost, or exercise this ghost. At the end, Beloved disappears. And that was a reading I held for a long time. And it was this idea, that, I mean, it, it fit in with other ideas I wanted to have about forgiveness as like, forgiveness is this act of the community, which triumphs over past evil and and purges it so that there can be a new future and all these things. But then I had the idea, there's this, there's this line in the book where um, one of the characters, uh, a guy named Stamp Paid, is talking to Paul D and he, and and actually there there are other ones too Ella who's another character they mention that right about the time this ghost appeared in Seth's house there was a young woman who had been kept by a white man and his son as a, a sexual slave basically and had escaped and nobody knew what happened to her and that happened just about the same time that this ghost shows up at at Seth's house right and it become it it becomes possible. There's another way to read the novel where this is this girl is not a ghost. She's a girl. She's a woman that shows up at Setha's house. And interestingly, Setha doesn't believe it's her daughter for a significant portion of the novel. Like she comes to it during a particularly stressful moment. There's just it says that something in her brain clicks, and then she starts to see this this young woman as her daughter. And it started just started me thinking about the idea of trauma and re-traumatization and the way the way the past can figure into our regard for the present. Because what happens is by the end of the novel, most of the characters believe that this girl is a ghost who needs to be purged from the community. And what I started thinking about was like, if she's not a ghost, then what's happened is that this girl has been has been banished from the community, right? This person mm-hmm. could not but be regarded as a a specter of the past instead of as a person in need of attention now and in the future. And it got me thinking about sort of the way that our preoccupations with forgiveness or the way we think about forgiveness tends to have us focused upon how we fix a past which cannot be fixed. If forgiveness is some miracle that restores the past that we choose instead of a kind of punishment that would also restore the past. Like there's this backward looking obsession with a lot of the way we think about these things, which is all about, I think, trying to let's, how do we undo a past that that is, that is traumatizing? How do we undo a past that can't be undone? And I see an opportunity in this novel to think about, you know, what happens when we, instead of thinking about the past as something that can be undone, 
start thinking about the present as an opportunity to live into a, a new future, to establish a new future, which maybe isn't about undoing the past, but rather reckoning with a past that cannot be undone, right? I, this is why I also talk a lot about memory and why my last, your last question and my last response is a lot to do with memory, because the danger here, I think, even on my own account, is that you run up against sort of like making the past insignificant or or forgetting or moving beyond the past means letting it go. And I don't think that's that's right either. I think that we have to have honest memory. We have to tell the truth about the past because the only future that's viable is one that is built upon the actual past, right? Like it's it can't be built upon a fantasy of the past or a fantasy of something we've restored, which can't be restored. And in this kind of, not just in the alternate reading of Beloved that I've come to hold for myself, but also in the way that the novel models I mean, what really got me when I came to this other reading of of Beloved was, you know, Tony, there's no more masterful writer than Tony Morrison, obviously, but, but was like, oh, she, like, if, if that is, if this is a viable reading, if it, if it is true that this is a girl or not a, and not a ghost, then she has made me as a reader do the same thing that every character in this novel has done, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. wish that the past was something that I could exercise. And once I exercise it, then it's fine. Then our future is fine. We don't have to worry about anything else. Every, the, the past has been exercised, right? And Morrison's challenge becomes so much more, I mean, it's already very acute and demanding, but so much more acute and demanding when she says like, oh, what if the past is not something we can exercise? It's something we have to figure out how to live with. And what if you, reader, especially a person like myself, who's who's not a descendant of enslaved people, right? Like, oh, isn't it convenient for me to think that the past was just exercised at the end of that novel, right? Like, wouldn't it be convenient if that's all that had to happen and then the past was undone and the ghosts were banished and now we can live into the future? Actually, the novel saying something much more um, unsettling and disturbing, which is like, oh, we cannot banish this past. And yet we have to figure out a way to live with it. And the only way we can figure out a way to live into the future with it is to acknowledge that that past cannot be banished. So at the end of the book, in the epilogue, like there's this refrain where it's talking about what happened to Beloved and to the memory of Beloved, where the line repeats three or four times, this is not, this was not a story to pass on. This was not a story to pass on. This is not a story to pass on. And and there are all kinds of like puns and subtle meanings there because you can think about pass on as dying. This is not a story to pass on. It can't die. It it continues living even if we pretend that we've exercised it. But it's also not a story to pass on. It's hard to tell it again. How do you tell this story again adequately? Right? Like there, there are these this sense that like we have this obligation to tell the story, but it's a story that we cannot fully tell, right? Um, but it's also a story that if we don't tell it, we'll keep being told in us, whether we tell it or not. Right. And so like, I think what she's challenging us with in this book is to say, our, our, the way we think about how we react to past wrong, I think what she's suggesting is that we are too preoccupied with undoing a past we can't undo. And the danger of that is we think that once we have addressed it, then it's like, it's gone, it's banished. And then the future is just open and wide and free and unencumbered by the past. And we know that's not true. The only future that we have is going to be built upon the history that we have. And so only a more robust and more honest telling of that history will actually undergird a livable, a livable future. And that's exactly what I think Setha and Paul D are dealing with at the end of this novel, which is the commu- many in the community around them think that they've exercised the past. But I think Setha knows at the end of the novel that, oh, no, we're just starting. We have just we have just started to reckon with this past and how we are going to live in the future. I think the the book is 
For me, in that case, the book becomes both less optimistic, but maybe more hopeful, if that makes sense. So let's talk about history a little bit. You note in the introduction of the book that forgiveness as a topic, as a practice, is very personal for you. And I want you to explain how personal and particularly, (laughs) this is kind of how I kind of want you to get into the details of your response, particularly as the movie Oppenheimer continues to get massive support here in the U.S. You know, how personal is this book for you and how has writing this book helped you? It's personal to me just for for very personal reasons and I'm not going to talk about on your podcast, right? I mean, like any other, like any, any, like any other human being, I've, I've hurt people who I love and they've hurt me. Right. And, and those people would probably not like me talking about it on your podcast. Um, but also the social, like a, a more social and, and kind of identity level. So I'm, I'm Japanese. I'm half Japanese or in Japan, they call me Hafu, right? I'm, I'm a, my mom is from Japan, born and raised in Japan. And my dad is, um, you know, Anglo-European, whatever, um, raised in, in the United States. And so I, you know, you mentioned the movie Oppenheimer, right? Like I've, you know, I, I served in the military too, but I've always had, as long as I, you know, was capable of having thoughts about the use of the atomic bomb, um, bombs in Japan, I've always had very kind of strong feelings of opposition to it. I mean, the, the deliberate targeting of civilians, that just always bothered me morally. As I grew older, I started learning a lot more about sort of Japanese war crimes in in East Asia um, and and what was perpetrated by the Japanese throughout East Asia. And then I thought about how my dad met my mom. My dad was serving during the Vietnam War um, in Japan. And then I started thinking about, you know, American colonial and imperial practices, right? And I just started to think about all these identities I have, um, these various identities I have, and how deeply they intersect, but also how, like, in every one of my identities, or well, not every one of my identities, but in several of my identities, especially my Japanese identity, and I think about, you know, the, in, the internment of Japanese Americans in the United States during World War II. My Japanese family was in Japan at the time, um, but I know that was a case here and there are, you know, immigration bans and so forth. What I started thinking about was how like kind of my youthful kind of um, indignation about things like the Japanese incarceration or things like the use of the atomic bomb in Japan. I think those are, I don't think that indignation is wrong, right? But that indignation is also not the end of the story because if I speak too much about that, what happens is I start to not say the kind of penitent things that a person of Japanese ancestry should also say, which is like, look what Japan did to American soldiers in the Philippines. Look what Japan did to Filipino nationals while they occupied the Filipinos and to people all over, all over East and Southeast Asia, like truly horrifying war crimes, which to be fair, like the, the Japanese government has done, has made some apologies, but not enough and not in any, you know, not in an adequate way. And, and when I reflect upon sort of post-war Japan, I didn't grow up in Japan, but I'm familiar with it. My family's there, right? A lot of the preoccupation, a lot of the penitence and the sense of sorrow and regret and shame and grief in Japan after the war was a lot about like, oh, look what we did to ourselves, that we caused these bombs to be dropped upon us. And not nearly enough, not nearly enough about like, oh, also, by the way, look at all the things that we did in the rest of Asia. And, and it just, I mean, for me, it becomes really important because, and, and this is a theological position as well too. You know, I think about this in, in the third part of my book and the second part of my book as well, I guess, which is just that, you know, there, there's also this sense in 
in Christian thought and Christian theology, which is like a rejection of moral purity, that human, like moral purity is actually not a category that humans can achieve. Um, and actually the, the fantasy that we can be morally pure is really dangerous because what that does is it means that we start to, to suppress in our own psychologies and our own ideologies, the places, exact places where we're failing rather than being alert and attuned to the places where we're failing, where we cannot but fail. Right. Um, and so the, the idea that my identities overlap upon all these, what I would call overlapping war crimes of people against each other, right? Um, just reminds me that like, oh, there's no pure position. There's no stance I can take above the, the complexity of human affairs and, and human hurts where you just get to, where I just get to be like removed from it. Rather like I, in, in my very personal identities and ethnic and, and racial identities, like I'm in the middle of all that. And the only way to speak honestly about any of these things is to, before I'm even done talking about the, the atomic bombings, I should be worrying about all the things I haven't said about Japanese war crimes. Like I have to imagine like, what if a Korean person or a, or a, or a Filipino person were, were listening to me talk about the suffering of the Japanese? Like, I also have to say this other thing, but I can't, I can't say both at the same time. I'm in this, this bind all the time to fully confess, to fully be honest, to fully account for my own history. It's a fruitful moral bind. I think like to, to acknowledge that we're in this place where we can't be pure actually allows us the possibility to be good because acknowledging that we can't be pure means, as I was saying before, that we become alert or we ought to become, we have the ability to become alert to exactly those places where we are failing, where we are letting others down, where we are not telling the full history of ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, especially because, you know, I, my grandfather's fought on opposite sides of, of World War II, like that sense of accountability, that sense of, of kind of mutual obligation, that sense of just being caught in this, in this moral bind always and never being able to escape it, that, that, feels, um, that feels personal to me. And it also feels, I mean, it, it maps onto some of the Christian theological and um, moral traditions that I already um, aligned with because of my identity as a Christian as well. So here are two big questions, two big practical okay. questions that I know listeners these are all been pretty about. big, my channel. I know, I know. But these are like the, the <laughs> okay. practical. And, okay. and okay. I know this is not going to be kind of a simple response, but I'm going to throw them yeah. throw them at you anyway. Okay. So someone may be listening and they may be thinking the following. When should I forgive? When shouldn't I forgive? And so those are the two questions I want to throw out yep. to you. And to kind of, I guess, anger these two questions, I just wonder how does an understanding of what forgiveness is? help us answer these, these questions. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're going to define forgiveness the way I want to define it, which is forgiveness is a, is a kind of posture of grief towards a broken past that rejects retaliation as a fix for the past. I think you can always forgive. Um, I think that you can always say, okay, the, the, my retaliatory response is not going to fix the past. And therefore, retaliation is not what I'm going to choose. To me, that's what is at stake in the way Jesus talks about forgiveness in the New Testament. And to me, that's how I want to define forgiveness. Now, what what I don't want to attach to it is like, can I still be angry without retaliating? Yes. Can I still demand some accountability without retaliation, <laughs> without retaliating? That is causing harm for the sake of causing harm. Yes. I think we should never cause harm just for the sake of causing harm, which is the way I'm thinking about retaliation. I mean, I think you can imagine 
you know, if if it's about building a new future, right? I think you can imagine way like instances in which some kind of um, you know, force or discipline in the broad sense of that word and its etymology is like kind of forming someone, like educating them or something, right? Like I think you can imagine responses to harm that aren't nice, right? That aren't necessarily pretty, right? But as long as those actions are are not, I would say, as long as those actions are not retaliatory in that they are not done because the harm is compensating for a prior harm, if they are done in order to try to posture me and the offender or a larger society towards some greater good, then that I'm morally, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think it may, those, some of those actions might even be, um, construable or conceivable under a model forgiveness as non-retaliation. And so what happens is like the practical questions become practical questions, which is, you know, there's, what do we do? We have this, I mean, and, and practically speaking, this ends up looking a lot more like, you know, when you think about restorative justice practices as they've come to be used or like, you know, post-conflict peacemaking processes in the international kind of peacekeeping realm, which is sort of like, okay, what do we need to do in the future to try to keep the peace, to try to repair um, relationships, to try to promote a better community going going forward? Not not all those things are going to be pleasant things for everybody involved. In fact, some may be very difficult and unpleasant things, but the difficult and unpleasant things are not assigned as retaliatory or retributive kind of harm to compensate for some past harm, they're, they can be conceivable and are conceivable as m- ways of modes of um, habits that will affect a better future. So if you take the very modest definition of forgiveness that I kind of advocate for in the book, which is just like no harm for harm's sake, then I think a person can always forgive but again, like I said before, I think we really need to be careful when we use that language because forgiveness does have so many kind of instinctive, intuitive connotations and associations with things like giving up anger or with things like reconciliation. Like to say, I'd be like if I was having a conversation, if, if we hadn't been just talking for 45 minutes or a half hour or whatever, like I, I would never say this to a person up front, right? Like if a person asked me just point blank because they know I wrote about, about forgiveness when should I forgive? When when shouldn't I forgive? Like I would want to lay really clear groundwork beforehand before I answer that question, saying things like, "You are you are always entitled to your anger. There's never a moment at which you are morally obligated to give up your anger because that's just anger's anger's anger. Like it's there for a reason. You don't have to. My saying that you must forgive doesn't mean that you are no longer entitled to be angry. You are never obligated to reconcile, especially with someone who still threatens you, right? Like my saying that you should forgive doesn't mean you should reconcile with your offender, especially if that person is dangerous or is unrepentant or whatever, right? What I would say to that person is like, by the time I get to the thing, like you're, it's always possible to forgive. What I would be saying is it's possible to not retaliate, that doesn't mean that you can't demand accountability. It doesn't mean that you can't be angry. It just means the kind of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, harm for harm's sake, retributive, retaliatory idea of justice is one that is one that you're willing to let go of because you're acknowledging that the past is one that a retaliatory act cannot undo. What has been the most rewarding and the most challenging about being a university chaplain? The most rewarding is the chaplain part <laughs> and the most uh, difficult challenging is the university part, right? I, you know, I, mean, I have to, I have to work in kind of 
two directions. Like, I, and, and I have, you know, just in case anybody's listening to this podcast, but not only because of that, I, I've had really great colleagues and so forth at university level. But, you know, a church at the university is different than a church on the street. I mean, I worked as a pastor at, 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 a, at a community church for a while before I got appointed the, the, the minister of the Memorial Church here at Harvard. Um, and if you're, you know, and, and, and when I was a priest in the church that I served, I was accountable to a bishop, but the bishop didn't really pay a lot of attention to, attention to me. Like I was, I was accountable to the church, right? And the church and the community in which th- this church existed. But you know, at, at a university, like I became accountable to this, all these other people that I wasn't used to being accountable to before, like the president of the university and other deans and and the the alumni association. And, and I don't think it changed like what I said or what I was willing to say. I mean, just like I was saying before, like I want to be attuned to the ways in which I might be deceiving myself and like want to pay attention, be self-critical of my own shortcomings and so forth. But I don't think I've, I don't think there's anything I've wanted to say, but I haven't said, but it does mean that like I have to deal with the university administration and bureaucracy in addition to whatever church bureaucracy I might've been dealing with before. And so that it's been great. I've got a lot of great colleagues and so forth, but also that complicates it. So the university part's the demanding part that the rewarding part is, is like I said, the chaplain part, it's, I've been a professor at the Divinity School here at Harvard for 10 years, but it's only when I became the minister of the church here that I really started working with undergraduate students. Most of my work was with graduate students in, you know, the study of religion uh, and students who are studying for ministry or whatever. And those students are delightful and great. Um, but I, I really started to develop relationships with undergrads um, once I became the minister. And that's that's been really, really great, really rewarding. Um, people who are undergraduates in college now face a really frightening future right um and they're really willing to talk about it right as they i think they're i think they're eager even the ones who aren't religious and you know a lot of students who come to harvard are not necessarily religious but they're really willing and interested in having conversations with a person of any kind of background who wants to ask questions of meaning and questions of value um because the world is in a difficult spot and it's facing some some difficult things in the future and i think they know that they don't really have time to to not have those conversations. So having conversations with and getting to know undergrads has, has been the most rewarding part, I think. Your last two books have put literature center stage. So I'm wondering, do you think you would ever write a novel? Do you even think about the possibility? <laughs> I remember this question. Too, yeah. a novel. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I had an English professor in, as I said, I was an undergrad English major and my favorite English professor, who was actually Pete Buttigieg's dad, Joe Buttigieg was my mm, was my wow. professor at Notre Dame. Um, he said all English majors are failed novelists, um, and I, <laughs> I don't know if he's entirely true about that, but he may be he may be partly true about that. Um, I uh, I you know I do I toy around with fiction a little bit, but it's not very good. You know I I, I wish I could write good fiction. I'm not sure that I can. Um, so I I've I've attempted some fiction writing. It's interesting though you asked a question about a novel. Like one of the things that I'm interested in with with the very casual and pretty lamentable fiction that I do write is um, is that I I I I think about form some right, and I I'm I part of me worries that the novel as a form sort of perpetuates an idea of Western selfhood of the self as a kind of containable sort of narrative. Um, coherent discourse over time, right? Like that that is kind of a fantasy of selfhood that that the literary form of the novel itself kind of 
lifts up or 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 um, girds or supports in some fundamental way. And so a lot of the fiction writing, which is not very good and is very casual and informal, the fiction writing I do like is much more fragmentary. It tries to, because I'm not deeply invested in that sense of the self. Um, I, I, the, the writing I do tries to ask like, is there a narrative form which avoids the dangers? What I see is the dangers of a, a particular kind of selfhood that the novel lifts up or, or lauds. So let's talk about dogs because why not? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have a mini, have a mini golden doodle. You have, yeah. <laughs> you have a woodle and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. So I could have Googled this, but I wanted to ask you directly. Yeah. What is that a mix of? And I'm going to give you the opportunity to sell that breed. What makes them great yeah. companions in your opinion? Sure. Can I ask your dog's name first? His name is Baldwin, named after James Baldwin. Baldwin. Oh, beautiful. like it. Um, so uh, a woodle is a mix of a Wheaton Terrier, which is a, an Irish Terrier breed, uh, and a Poodle, which is, they're all called Poodles. Any Oodle is a Poodle mix, right? Um, they also go by the name, we don't like this as much, but Woodles also go by the name Wheaton Poo. Uh, because they're half Wheaton Terrier. No, I don't like that either. That's why we go with Woodle. So uh, a Wheaton Terrier is an Irish Terrier breed. It's a fairly large Terrier breed. Um, and they are, they're very Terrier, like they're super energetic, super enthusiastic, super excitable. The reason we got a Woodle is because my my kids wanted a dog and I wanted a dog. And my wife is allergic to dogs or, you know, pretty allergic to most dogs, but Wheatons are hypoallergenic and, and poodles are also. And so like this kind of hair on this dog, Woodles don't have fur, they have, they have hair. And this kind of hair is especially unlikely to cause allergic reactions in people who tend to be allergic. And so that's why we went with the Woodle. Um, that's one selling point. Um, I, I, I love our dog Suki. Uh, she, I'm, I'm not sure my wife loves Suki as much as I do because Suki is five or six now and behaves as if she's like 18 months. Like she is, oh. I think the, the life cycle of a, of a woodle, we were told, well, we, we were told this after we had one. So it was too late for my wife, but I'm okay with this. Cause I, lo- I love it. But the life cycle of woodle is basically like po- puppy, 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 puppy dead. Right. They're just, they're just oh. like, they're full <laughs> of energy all the time. They're excited all the time. They just, I mean, you know, like when I come home from, from, you know, just being away at work for eight hours or whatever, Suki will like just run around the house for like three minutes. Just, she's so excited to, to see me. Like, it's just, she's got that kind of energy. So if, if that's the kind of affirmation you need when you get home from work, if you've had a, if you've had a hard, hard day disappointing the bureaucrats at Harvard and you come home, um, it can be really nice to come home to a creature who this is literally the best thing that ever happened to them is you're walking in the door. That's what a woodle gives you. Matthew, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I, I really learned a lot. Hey, here's an interesting Thanks, note Marcia. just for the listeners. Yeah. When yeah. I was a fellow at Harvard, you were yeah. teaching a, a class on forgiveness that I couldn't yeah. attend because it was conflicting with a W. Du Bois class that I was taking. But you was teaching a class on forgiveness, currently writing the book. And while I was at Harvard, I was writing my dissertation on forgiveness, which was, you know, a lot of it was inspirational for my current book that will be out in a few days. So I'm just so happy to have this conversation uh, with you about forgiveness. And congrats so much again on the book. Well, congratulations to you on your book, which is which is excellent and wonderful and everyone listening should go get it uh if they haven't already pre-ordered it yeah it was great i mean i we had we had like brunch together over at uh the russell house tavern i remember with some with some other, right. um, folks yeah and i just i've watched your rise and been so glad to have 
I've spoken to you once and I'm glad not to speak to you again. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.